As we near the end of Genesis, we have been taking a chapter at a time, and I think rightly so. Uh, There is a good amount of recapitulation through these final chapters, but the main lesson to be learned is the sovereign providence of God, that, that God is at work in this world. And, and he is at work not despite the acts and events of sin committed by men, but even by those acts and events. And as for the repetition, it seems to me this is how the, the Holy Spirit often works, by way of rapid fire, we might say. The closing chapters of Genesis bring about a, a kind of rapid fire the same lesson reinforced over and over. There is a, there is a kind of summary, a, a conclusion, and a repetition for the sake of emphasis, with the, the central lesson being, again, the sovereign providence of God. But this morning, as we come upon Genesis 49, I think it better to take only part of the chapter this time, specifically Genesis 49, 1-12. through And for the sake of introduction, I ask, have you ever heard of the prophet Isaiah? Of course you have. Uh, Along with the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and each of the prophets whose names serve as the title to the latter books of the Old Testament. But have you ever heard of the prophet Jacob? You've heard of Jacob, of course, but have you heard that Jacob, too, was among the prophets of God? I say all this because the opening words of Genesis 49 are largely Jacob's own words, Verse 1 records, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. There are, uh, or these are the unmistakable words of a prophet. I will tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And the next verses add to this understanding of Jacob as a prophet, because as he began to speak, he said this, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. That's that's what you do when when there is a true prophet of God. You assemble and, and, and listen. You listen to the prophet who is speaking for God. Here is a passage of Scripture that that calls us, uh, gives us opportunity to consider the issue of prophecy. It cannot be denied, if we believe that the Bible is true and, and trustworthy, that God has spoken through prophets in the past over many years and centuries. Uh, Elijah, Elisha, Nathan the prophet during King David's reign, Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And and Hebrews 1 
confirms this this flow, this progression of prophecy through past ages. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. What this teaching of Scripture does is, is first to confirm the, the, the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. But secondly, uh, it serves to move us along in redemptive history to bring us to see that Christ is truly and fully the fulfillment of the ages. Every year we to one degree or another at least, every year we celebrate Christmas, uh, the traditional somewhat ceremonial day to remember and give thanks to God for the the gift of, of Christ our Lord, born in Bethlehem. But really, the entire Christian faith is a recognition and a celebration of the coming of Christ because we are living in the fulfillment of God's time. We are living in the day of Christ's coming so that the apostles spoke of this new day in Christ. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, preached the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. So all this to ask the question that I hope we've already answered Does God still speak through prophets in our own day? There are traditions within the church that still call their preachers prophets. But from our Reformed perspective, we see that that as a dangerous designation. The, The danger being to add to or subtract from the truth of Christ and the resulting scriptures. So our answer is no, God does not still speak through prophets in our own day. And to be clear, it it was also dangerous in the the day when God did still speak to his people through prophets. There have always been false prophets in the church. Because how do you know whether someone claiming to be a prophet is truly a prophet, truly speaking for God? The test that God himself assigned to determine if a prophet was true was was whether his word, his prediction of the future, came to pass. In our day, we are not subjected to that long-term testing because the long-term testing of the prophet's word has already been conducted. In our day, we have the scriptures the scriptures issued, the scriptures tested, the scriptures fulfilled to teach us that God is God and that God has spoken in history and that God has spoken his final word in Christ. And so as we have those scriptures, as, as we know that God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets Let's consider this morning that even Jacob was a prophet. Not that he wore camel skin and and ate locust and wild honey like Elijah and John the Baptist, 
But Jacob was given by God to speak and to prophesy, which is to say to tell the future. Gather yourselves together, said Jacob to his sons, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. The thing that strikes me as I uh, read Genesis 49 is that some of Jacob's sons were uh, probably glad they had come, and others were perhaps uncertain about how they should feel, given their father's prophecy of their future. First, there was the disqualification of the firstborn. Clearly, Reuben's sin was great, and Jacob had not forgotten it. In a day of sexual desire in a young man's life, in the rush of lust that men still feel today, Reuben had had sex with one of his uh, father's wives. It, It wasn't as bad as it could have been, but it was very wicked and very evil, of course. That, as Jacob put it, he went up to his father's bed, he went up to my couch. I think the exclamation point in the ESV is is appropriate and probably could be doubled. Um, It's like saying, what in the world were you doing, my son? Uh, How you have ruined yourself going in to be intimate with one of my wives, not your own mother, at least, but with one of your father's wives. And so this was the prophetic word pronounced by Jacob upon Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. You are preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. There are a couple things to note here. First, the significance of the firstborn. To understand this and recognize the significance, we need to go back again to the the promise of a Savior, the the coming seed of Eve, uh, the coming offspring of Abraham, even later the coming son of David. As we have noted before, here is a theme that, that... runs, continues to run throughout the entire Old Testament that a Savior was coming. And this Savior, promised by God, would not be an extraterrestrial. Uh, The coming Savior would not be a a creature disconnected from mankind. Uh, He would not be a Martian, nor would he just be an angel. He would not be a bull or a goat or a lamb. He would be born of Eve, born of a human mother, because this is the justice of God, that man has sinned and man must pay for his own sin. So again, we're, we're dealing with the birth of children, with the, uh, but the firstborn of man was always insufficient. We saw it first with Eve and her firstborn, Cain. Cain proved to be not the Savior, but indeed a murderer, even murdering his own brother. And then Noah, 
But Noah proved to be a sinner like the rest of mankind, even after receiving the grace of God and being saved from the flood. Then there was Abraham, the firstborn of his father Terah, uh, and his firstborn Isaac. Both of them proved only to follow in the footsteps of Adam, their father, succumbing to unbelief and continuing in sin. And then there was Jacob. Jacob, who was second-born, and yet no less imperfect than his older brother, older by a couple minutes, but still older, his older brother Esau. All the way through the history of redemption, there is an emphasis on childbearing. Why? Because of the justice of God, and thus the glory of God in His justice. Man has sinned. Man must pay for his sin. But how will that ever be possible? Even further, there is an emphasis on the firstborn, or in some cases, not the firstborn. But over and over again, the message is clear that man by himself cannot satisfy God's justice. At least not while at the same time providing for his own salvation, and for the salvation of God's people. So the second thing to note under this first point is is the works of man. The firstborn was considered the the first fruits of of a father's strength. This This is what Jacob said in referring to his firstborn. You are my firstborn, my might. And the first fruits of my strength. It seems to me that we don't tend to think this way nearly as much in our day, that the firstborn is somehow special and better, although there are exceptions when parents uh, uh, look to their firstborn as special and better in some way, uh, even if only on a kind of ceremonial level. Uh, I've seen that before. I've tried not to practice that myself with my own kids because it's, it's, kind of, it, it, it's the kind of thinking that really belongs to the flesh, that, that somehow the firstborn of a man's strength will serve as the Savior. But the Hebrew Scriptures shoot this down, we might say, shoot it down over and over and over and over again, if we don't get this, then, then we are fools in our sin and we are ignorant of God's word. If we, if we think that eventually mankind will be able to save themselves or that mankind will evolve to the point of being able to save themselves. Here is the, the biblical theological explanation for the absolute nonsense of the theory of evolution. The universe came about by no external force. Uh, mankind is, is even a grand cosmic accident, uh, a chance occurrence, but is evolving and eventually will solve all of its own problems. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So they used to sing, maybe still do on some radio station. Some, some would even put death on the list of things that man will eventually solve. 
How do people seriously think thus? Well, only by way of pride and, and, and foolishness, which is to say by way of sin, and, and unto the, the guarantee of death. And if God's word be true, unto the clutches of Satan and the eventuality and the eternity of hell. So Reuben, firstborn, is disqualified. The strength of Jacob is disqualified, as, uh, as is any of our own strength. And yet, by way of the next two prophecies, we see that the point is, is not to single out Reuben for judgment and doom. Next, we have the division of the violent. And I use the word division here because uh, verse 7 says, referring to Simeon and Levi, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here we need to recall another story. With Reuben, we needed to recall what he did, disgusting sin that it was. Here we need to recall what the sons of Jacob did in response to their sister Dinah being violated by Shechem, the the son of Hamor, recorded in Genesis 34. It It was Simeon and Levi who conspired to take revenge for what had been done to their sister Dinah. And as much as we might understand their anger and their desire for justice, yet these two sons of Jacob carried out a plot to kill not just Shechem, the man who violated their sister, but also Hamor, his father, and also all the men of that city. And their revenge was taken unjustly, even upon all the people of the city, as they plundered their goods once all the men of the city were taken out. Well, here's the problem with revenge. That spurred on by sinful anger, it it goes beyond justice. God's law did call for an eye for an eye. In other words, the full price must be paid for the sake of justice. But the same justice, an eye for an eye, also limited the punishment. The punishment must not be less than the crime, but neither must the punishment be more than the crime. But Simeon and Levi killed not only Shechem, but his father as well, and uh, even more, every man living in the city. And then they plundered the goods of the helpless people remaining. Again, on one hand, how can you put a price on uh, a woman's virginity and her dignity um, as a person made in the image of God? On the other hand, how can you hold the men of an entire city guilty for the sin of but one worthless man. And so Jacob prophesied concerning these two of his sons. In verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. 
Let their soul not uh, let my soul not come into their counsel. O my soul, be not joined to their company. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. I think it's a mistake in in most Bibles that this passage is headed as. Jacob blesses his sons, or the blessing of Jacob upon his sons. How is this a blessing? It's, it is rather a curse. Verse 7 even reads, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is, it is cruel. That's not a blessing. That's a, it's even stated as a curse, and it's based upon the sin of Simeon and Levi. And yet, at the same time, we, we can see the purpose of God in this. It, it, it's not so easy to understand, perhaps, how Simeon was divided. And the point is not just that Simeon and Levi are divided from each other, but that each tribe was divided. Um, it's, we, it's a little bit hard to understand how this, uh, how this uh, plays out with Simeon and his offspring, um, but this is exactly what we see with Levi. Okay. He was indeed scattered among Israel. We, we pointed this out last time, that, that Levi was not counted among the twelve tribes of Israel. Or, or if you want to say he was counted, then the Levites were the thirteenth tribe of, of Israel. But they weren't counted in the sense that they weren't given an allotment of territory in the promised land. And the reason was because the Levites, the descendants of Levi, would serve by God's ordination. They would serve as the priests of Israel. And so they would indeed be divided among Israel. And, and what a scandalous picture of God's grace. That, that Levi was punished for what he did in his youth, such that his descendants would even be scattered in Israel, and yet this was God's purpose, that the descendants of Levi would serve as the priests and the temple servants of the Lord. And this might make us, uh, tempt us at least, to take sin lightly, you know, hey, if, if Levi sinned and it all worked out all right, it, it all turned out for good according to God's own purpose, then maybe our sin doesn't matter so much. But that obviously, I hope, is the wrong response. The Apostle Paul addresses this in Romans 3, verse 8, when he writes, And, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is, is just. The point is not that sin doesn't matter. The point, rather, is to see all the more the grace of God. The grace of God is like, is like rising water, we might say, and, and eventually it's meant to drown you. It's meant to, it's meant to kill you, at least to kill your sinful self. The old man in you, the grace of God, studied and 
and learned and, and meditated upon must eventually put to death the pride and the, the excuse-making still found in each of us. The descendants of Levi were divided. They were scattered throughout Israel in the Promised Land because of Levi's sin, and yet the divided, scattered descendants of Levi were used of God to serve as the priesthood of Israel. It's, it's, it's an amazing prophecy, especially as we see it fulfilled. But even as the prophecy came true, even as the descendants of Levi served as the priesthood of Israel, we, we also see the need for a more perfect priesthood, one in the order of Melchizedek. We see the need for the perfect and eternal priesthood of Christ. Finally then, at least for today, the choice of a scepter. What is a scepter? Verse 10 records, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. I did a, a bit of study this week on what a scepter is. And uh, guess what I came up with? References to the uh, funeral of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, apparently there was a, a cere- there is a ceremonial scepter, uh, a rod of rule, a staff of authority that belongs to the king or queen of England. And this scepter was uh, even placed upon the coffin of Queen Elizabeth until the moment when her body was interred. Then the scepter was removed and given to the new monarch. Of course, in in this illustration, we're dealing with a a ceremonial, largely ceremonial monarchy, but but the image of, of a scepter is is helpful, I think, for understanding the, the prophecy of Jacob concerning Judah. The scepter of Judah, promised by Jacob, is a, a bold proclamation of the coming of Christ and of his eternal reign as king. Think of the prophecies and then add this one to the rest. The seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. The offspring of Abraham, whom Paul taught is Christ, will receive the blessing of God forever and ever. And now the scepter will not depart from Judah. Later, the same promise would be given to David, that one of his sons would would sit forever on the throne, ruling even the entire world, even all the nations on earth. But the scepter of Judah is Christ himself. And here we have another story to remember. We might think that uh, if if Judah gets the the real and true blessing of Jacob, then uh, he must have been the worthy one. But what have we already heard? But that in some ways Judah was the worst of them all. The sin of Reuben was a one-time event, probably a disastrous loss of, of, uh, of, 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 of self-control in a, in a moment of lust. The sin of Simeon and Levi was driven by anger and, and the desire for revenge. We can understand that. 
to some degree. But what did Judah do? He abandoned his family. He went and lived for an extended period of time with the Canaanites. He even took, a, took for himself a Canaanite wife. He even fathered his own grandchildren. Think about that. Because I think we're supposed to think about it. He fathered his own grandchildren. And he did so even by thinking he was going in to a prostitute. And there is absolutely no mention of this in Jacob's so-called blessing upon his sons, and now specifically upon Judah. What is going on here? Why Judah? Why would the scepter not pass from Judah? Why was he more worthy? Well, the point is, he wasn't more worthy. God's blessing never falls upon the one most deserving. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one among mankind worthy of God's blessing. But God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will show compassion to whomever he will show compassion. God is no respecter of persons. Because there is no person among mankind, for God to respect. And this should be a comfort to you that God is not waiting. He's not waiting for you to deserve it before He blesses you. God's blessing, even His blessing of salvation in Christ, comes by grace, and this is what grace is. To prove the point, Judah, previously apostate Judah, the true black sheep of the family, Judah is promised the honor that the line of Christ would pass through him, that he would be the father of the final eternal king of Israel for the salvation of all God's people. Well, let's close with the the wonderful image uh, given in verse 11. Uh, Jacob speaks of, of Christ, Judah's offspring, as binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. That's usually not a smart thing to do. You don't tie up your leaf eating animal to your most valuable plants. Why? Because the leaf-eating animal is going to eat your most valuable plant. I have a garden, and I have a a short fence around it, a bit of chicken wire, and why? To keep the rabbits out. So is this the image of foolishness, to tie up a horse or a donkey directly to to the choice vine? No, this is an image of abundance. So plentiful, so abundant will be the blessings of God in Christ that all will eat, and all will eat abundantly and lavishly, luxuriously. Let the deer invade the the corn 
the cornfield. Let the, let the rabbits have full access to the garden. It won't matter because the produce will be lavish and it will be abundant. And it will come about as the scepter remains with Judah. It will come about through Christ. The seed of Eve, the offspring of Abraham, and now the scepter of Judah. Do we know, have we, have we sought to understand how, how blessed we are in Christ? Jesus himself said, I, I, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. And granted, the fullness of that abundant life is yet to be fully known. But it's promised to us now. Will we, will we be like young Jacob and say, well, okay, if? Or will we have the faith of the older, mature Jacob, the, the Jacob ready to die? God is no respecter of persons. He's not waiting for anyone to deserve his promises. In Christ, he just promises. Everyone, everyone who believes will be saved. So trust him. Just rest in him. Uh, Only receive what is freely offered to all. Forgiveness. Righteousness. Peace, even eternal life through the scepter of Judah, the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you for the many ways your word tells us, O God, of the coming of Christ. And we thank you that we can also read in your word, that he has come, the scepter of Judah, and that he reigns forever. Having died and risen, he will never die again. He lives forever as prophet, priest, and king, indeed, our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.